everybody. Thanks for coming today and, and squeezing into our very lovely but not quite spacious uh, space today. I'm Laura Odata with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about tax issues involved with Obamacare. And we have a great panel, so I'm just going to give you a few notes and then uh, introduce them and let them take over. We do have some great new papers and materials out front. We might have run out of them, so if you have any follow-up or you weren't able to get them, just follow up with me or any of the panelists afterwards. We'll make sure you get those for you guys or anyone else in your office. Um, we have three speakers today. First up is Jonathan Adler, who is the inaugural Johan Verhey, I have maybe butchered that, Memorial Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where he teaches courses in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. He is a senior fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, a contributing editor to the National Review Online, and a regular contributor to the popular legal blog, The Volokh Conspiracy. Prior to joining the faculty at Case Western, he clerked for the Honorable David B. Santel on the U.S. Court of Appeals and also previously worked at the Competitive Enterprise, Competitive Enterprise Institute here in D.C. He's also the co-author of a new paper with Michael Cannon that I didn't get a copy of, but like I said, if you didn't get a copy as well, I'm happy to get one for you. Following Jonathan today is Michael Cannon, the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Michael previously served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee, and he's also appeared on ABC... CBS, CNN, CNBC, C-SPAN, and the Fox News Channel. And his articles have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the LA Times, and the Yale Journal of Health Policy. Michael is also the co-author of the book Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Health Care and How to Free It. Following them will be Timothy Jost, who holds the Robert L. Willett Family Professorship of Law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law. And you have a very uh, storied panel. You have a lot of intros to get through. Timothy Jost is the co-author of the casebook Health Law, used widely throughout the U.S. in teaching health law. He has also written numerous articles and book chapters on healthcare regulation and comparative health law and policy, and he's lectured on health law topics throughout the world. His most recent book is Healthcare at Risk, a Critique of the Consumer-Driven Movement. So with that, I will turn the podium over to Jonathan. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here to, to talk about this issue. Um, what I'm going to do relatively briefly uh, to make sure to leave time for the other folks and, and plenty of time for, for questions is talk a little bit about uh, the lawsuit um, that the state of Oklahoma has filed and the legal basis for that lawsuit challenging uh, the IRS rule purporting to authorize tax credits for the purchase of health insurance in federal exchanges. Um, and then Michael's going to talk a little bit about what the implications of that suit are for implementation of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Um, just to give a little bit of background, though, I would note that um, it's important to, to recognize that this lawsuit is not uh, an isolated suit. Um, NFIB versus Sebelius uh, and that decision at the Supreme Court may have been certainly the most significant Federal, decision, federal court decision on health care thus far, uh, but it will not be the last. Uh, as of last I checked about a week ago, there are over three dozen lawsuits against portions of the federal health care reform law or, or the implementation of that law already pending in federal court uh, and more to follow. And these cases cover a wide range of issues. Some are constitutional challenges to portions of the act itself that uh, remain in the courts. Uh, some are challenges to uh, its implementation. And just given the size uh, and complexity of the act, as well as the way it was enacted, and the fact that the, that the law did not go through the usual fly-specking process that occurs, typically occurs in a House Senate conference, 
uh, these lawsuits are a sign of things to come. And, uh, and, and I would suggest that uh, this, this over three dozen lawsuits that are already in federal court um, are, are only the beginnings of what are, will be years uh, of litigation on dozens of issues. Uh, the, the case I want to talk about briefly is one uh, that was filed by the state of Oklahoma um, focusing on an IRS rule implementing a portion of the act and in particular purporting to authorize tax credits for the purchase of health insurance uh, in exchanges created by the federal government. Basically, uh, the, the idea behind the Oklahoma lawsuit is that the way the law is written, it offers states a choice. Uh, it offers states a choice when it comes to the creation of exchanges because the federal government cannot can tell states what to do. It is well established that there is an anti-commandeering doctrine that prevents the federal government from ordering states to implement federal policy. The federal government wants states to implement federal policy. It has to make it worth their while. Uh, it can offer funds. It can threaten to preempt state law. It can use its other powers to make it in the state's interest to enact what the federal government would like, but it can't simply command them to, to uh, in this case, create an exchange. And so what Oklahoma is arguing, I think correctly, is that the law as written offers states a choice. States can either create an exchange of their own uh, that it, through which individuals can purchase uh, health insurance. And if the state does this, then tax credits will be available to those individuals. Uh, insurers will be able to get cost-sharing subsidies. Uh, and that this will, is a reason why states might want to create exchanges. Uh, but a consequence of this is that the issuance of tax credits triggers enforcement of the employer mandate, the mandate on larger employers to provide health insurance. The way that is enforced is that once a, an employee of a firm covered by this mandate purchases uh, insurance in, a, in an exchange and receives a tax credit, that is what then triggers uh, the financial penalty on employers. Uh, and so uh, states have a choice. They can participate in uh, implementation of the, of the law by creating an exchange, bearing the implementation costs of the exchange, and uh, allowing for tax credits and, and cost-sharing subsidies to their citizens, but at the expense of uh, employers being subject to the employer ma mandate. It also turns out at the expense of exposing more of their citizens to uh, uh, enforcement of the individual mandate uh, because of the way uh, the, uh, that is enforced in the law, and I think Michael's going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, whoops, a little too far. Uh, the IRS implemented a rule, or finalized a rule recently, which eliminates this choice. Uh, the, the IRS implemented a rule that's saying whether a state creates an exchange or not, the tax credits and therefore the cost subsidies and therefore the tax penalties under the employer mandate will uh, be in place whether or not a state creates its own exchange. That if the federal government creates an exchange in place of the state, that tax credits will still be available. The problem is that the plain text of the statute does not authorize the IRS to do this. The IRS does not have the general authority to issue tax credits or to authorize expenditures out of the federal treasury through subsidies. It can only do so when authorized by legislation. And the health care reform law does not do so. In fact, it explicitly provides uh, to the contrary. Uh, Oklahoma also claims that the explanation and justification for the rule that the IRS provides is deficient under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that part of their argument, but when you see the, the explanation or justification that the IRS provided, you might understand why 
why Oklahoma would make that claim. In terms of the statute itself, um, the relevant proportion of the statute uh, authorizes tax credits and the cost-sharing subsidies only during coverage months, which are defined as months in which a qualifying taxpayer is enrolled in health insurance, purchased, and this is the relevant language, through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. Section 1311 is the portion of the law that tells states to, to implement exchanges, and I've already noted that that's not, even though the law is written as a command, doesn't operate that way. Uh, but in case there was any doubt, the law doesn't simply reference Um, in case there's any doubt, the law doesn't simply mention or reference the relevant section number, section 1311. It also explicitly makes clear that it must be an exchange established by a state. That is how we define whether or not someone uh, is covered and, and whether or not the tax credits are, are available and in turn whether or not the cost-sharing subsidies are to apply. Um, the IRS, in explaining why it was uh, providing for exchanges, says that a taxpayer is eligible for the credit, and this is in the rule they issued, uh, whether they purchased a, a health plan through an exchange established under Section 1311 or 1321. So while the statute says Section 1311, and it says established by a state, and in fact repeats that language multiple times, the IRS rule says Section 1311 or Section 1321. Uh, when asked about, uh, so again, the, the, the statute says tax credits are for insurance through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. Section 1311 itself also further defines an exchange for purposes of that section as an exchange, uh, as a government agency or nonprofit entity that is established by a state. Um, the IRS, on the other hand, says tax credits are available for either exchanges created under Section 1311 or Section 1321. Uh, to justify this, uh, the IRS offered the following explanation, and this paragraph is the entirety of the explanation the IRS offered when it finalized its rule, which perhaps explains why the state of Oklahoma thinks that there's an Administrative Procedure Act problem there, because this is not much of an explanation. Uh, they, the IRS says that the statutory language of Section 36B and other provisions of the Affordable Care Act, although it does not cite them, support the interpretation that credits are available to taxpayers who obtain coverage through a state exchange, regional exchange, subsidiary exchange, and federally facilitated exchange. Moreover, the relevant legislative history does not demonstrate that Congress intended to limit the premium tax credit to state exchanges, but again, no citation to legislative history, no citation to a colloquy, no citation to any report by any committee, because there is no colloquy, there is no report from any relevant committee, there is no floor statement. In fact, there is nothing that the IRS has been able to to identify, to support this claim. Uh, and it said, the IRS says, accordingly, the final regulation maintain the rule in the proposed regulation because it is consistent with the language, purpose, and structure of Section 36B, which is an interesting way to justify tax credits and appropriations in the form of cost-sharing subsidies that Congress didn't authorize. Well, it's consistent with the statute. Imagine if the IRS had the authority to authorize tax credits or to authorize spending any time it's not contradicted by the statute it's purporting to implement. As someone that focuses on administrative law, that's a pretty dramatic and astounding assertion of authority by a federal agency. But that is essentially what the IRS is doing here. Um, 
In, in, in other uh, uh, instances, the IRS has been asked to provide more justification that's provided in the rule and has simply come up with, with very little. Uh, the arguments that have been made uh, either by the IRS or the others that defend the rule have been that, well, this was congressional intent. But there's no evidence that this was congressional intent. And there's plenty of evidence that Congress had good reasons to condition tax credits on state creation of an exchange. And one of them I've already alluded to. Congress can't tell states what to do. So it has to find other ways of encouraging states to do what Congress would like. One way to do it, a very common way to do it, is to write a very big check. But we can understand why the authors of the, of the health care reform law might have thought that they had already written as many checks or promised to write as many checks as they were going to write and that they might need to find other ways to encourage states to cooperate. And one way to do that, and something that we certainly saw in prior iterations of the bill, is to say to states, okay, if you want your citizens to have these tax credits, you've got to do what the federal government wants. Explanation that's perfectly consistent with the actual text of the act and explains what, what Congress uh, did. The other arguments that have been made is that it's a Scrivener's error, that this, is a mis this was a, just a simple mistake. We see these sorts of things in long, complicated statutes all the time. We see lots of cross-references to various sections and subsections. I do work on the Clean Air Act. There are lots of examples of, uh, in the Clean Air Act of this sort of thing where a reference to section A2B really should have been A2B, A2C or something like that. But here, that's not plausible, both because we have a ready explanation for why Congress might have done that, but also because the plain text of the statute is not simply internal cross-references. The argument against the IRS rule is not simply that, well, someone, it says Section 1311, but that it also reiterates an exchange established by a state. So even someone that had no idea what Section 1311 was when reviewing the statute would know what the statute was referring to. Uh, there are arguments that this would produce absurd results, um, and, and just for time purposes, I won't go in, into the details of that, but no, it, states are offered a choice. And it turns out, contrary to the expectations of most of those who supported the, the law, is that states were less eager to create exchanges than people had predicted. Um, there was a misjudgment. There wasn't a drafting mistake. There was a political misjudgment about how states might respond to the set of incentives and inducements that Congress had offered. The last defense, uh, is the argument that the text is ambiguous and that because it's ambiguous, the IRS is, is due a certain amount of leeway in being able to interpret that text. The, uh, it, the way we, we refer to this is that the IRS should get what's called Chevron deference, which is a legal doctrine that says that when Congress writes an ambiguous statute, because Congress tends to do that sometimes, the agency that implements that statute should be allowed to interpret that statute and that that interpretation should be upheld so long as it is consistent with the statute. Some important things about that doctrine, though. One is, is that that doctrine only applies if the text is ambiguous. And the ambiguity of the text is not something that the agency gets to determine. The ambiguity of the text is something that is supposed to be evident on the face of the text and, and in the context of a lawsuit, something that courts determine, not agencies. And I think, as I've already noted, and if we, in our paper we go through it at probably excessive length, the text of the statute is not ambiguous. Uh, Further, as, as the Supreme Court has noted uh, in a bunch of decisions over the last 10 years or so, implementing the Chevron Doctrine and applying it, uh, there are reasons, there are certain sorts of questions that generally make Chevron uh, deference unappealing or, 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 or not, not the sort of thing that courts will find. Um, there's actually another case the Supreme Court is hearing this year that goes into this question. The, and the idea is, is that 
when we say that an agency gets to interpret an ambiguous text, what we are saying is, is that Congress wasn't sure how to resolve this question and is, has delegated that authority to the agency. And so there are a lot of con contexts where we might think that makes sense because agencies may have a certain amount of technical expertise about a given problem that Congress doesn't have and Congress wants to give the agency a certain amount of leeway. The Supreme Court has made clear that where we can't or where we don't find evidence that Congress meant to, to delegate this question, there cannot be Chevron deference. And here, the question is whether or not tax credits that are not expressly authorized by Congress, even though it authorized, expressly authorized them for, for state exchanges, and cost-sharing subsidies that, again, were not expressly authorized by Congress, that whether or not to, off, to offer them uh, and, and to accept the fiscal consequences of them is the sort of question that uh, we can presume Congress meant to delegate to the IRS. And there are lots of reasons why I think we should be wary of that sort of interpretation. But let's say we reject all these arguments, and this is the last point I'm going to make. Let's just look at whether and what the arguments about statutory ambiguity are. And I think the, the, the primary one and the one that the IRS has pointed to uh, more recently uh, is that um, there, in, in Section 1321 of the Act, uh, the federal government is told states don't create an exchange, you create an exchange. And it says that if the state fails to create the required exchange, that would be the exchange under Section 1311, the secretary shall directly or through agreement with a not-for-profit entity establish and operate such exchange. And the argument is that such exchange, sir, at least could be interpreted to make an ex a federal exchange stand in the place of a state exchange under Section 1311. Now, Oklahoma has some arguments about why this is an interpretation that raises lots of federalism issues, that the idea of one sovereign truly standing in, this, in, the, in, in the shoes of another raises uh, some difficult issues. Uh, but this is a difficult uh, argument uh, to make because the statute repeatedly not only references exchanges established under Section 1311, which is the antecedent reference in this, in this provision, but also reiterates established by a state. So we could say a Section 1321 exchange is a Section 1311 exchange. It's still not an exchange established by a state. Congress repeated both language throughout the statute. Further, uh, when Congress was uh, going through, and so we could, I mean, I, for time reasons I won't go through this, but there are various portions of the act that you essentially have to eliminate to accept this argument. You have to assume that lots of language in the act is redundant. But the, the one other point I just want to make on this interpretation before turning it over to Michael is that as we know when this law was enacted, we had a Senate bill because Scott Brown was elected, um, uh, there, the, the process for final passage had to go through reconciliation, and so the Senate bill had to be enacted, and then revisions had to be enacted. And in those revisions, in, in the HCERA, the House and Senate uh, made multiple revisions to the relevant portions of the Act. Uh, and among other things, they created a provision which required exchanges to report information uh, both to the federal government and to taxpayers. And in this provision, Congress knew that if, if it wanted this to apply to both exchanges under Section 1311, that is state exchanges, and federal exchanges created under Section 1321, it had to mention both. So when Congress was going back and amending these provisions, not only did it not clarify the language that is at issue, it, pointed at, it, it knew that when it wanted to, to affect both, it had to reference both. And that is precisely what Congress did. Uh, that is, uh, that uh, is, is entirely incompatible with the argument that the IRS is trying to rely upon that the reference to such exchange I would authorize for their rule. So enough of my legal jargon. Uh, Michael's now going to talk about uh, the policy implications of all this. 
Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for coming. And, and thank you, uh, Professor Jost, for coming here uh, to debate this with us. We did promise him equal time. So I've got a clock, clock running on both Jonathan's and my presentation. And you're going to get equal t time to uh, what both of us consumed. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about why the Oklahoma lawsuit is significant. Uh, and it's because Obamacare's authors handed its opponents a weapon a very powerful weapon, powerful enough to uh, force Congress at a minimum to make major revisions to the law and maybe even to repeal it. All that has to happen for opponents to use that weapon is for states not to create exchanges. Uh, the, the, the health insurance exchanges that the law asks states to create. Now most people are surprised to learn, as Jonathan and I were surprised to learn, that this was intentional. The language of the statute is remarkably clear. And all of the evidence shows that this is what Congress intended. So what the Oklahoma suit tries to do is it tries to stop the IRS from rewriting the law in a manner that, contrary to congressional intent and the clear text of the statute, uh, deprives states of that power that Congress granted them. And it tries to stop the IRS from uh, creating subsidies that Congress did not authorize, taxing employers whom Congress did not authorize them to tax, and even taxing individuals whom Congress did not authorize them to tax. Now, why are health insurance exchanges so important? Well, these exchanges are the new government agencies that are going to enforce Obamacare's insurance regulations and dole out up to a trillion dollars in subsidies to health insurance companies. The statute asks states to create these. Congress can't force states to create them. And if states refuse, the statute directs the federal government to create them for states. Now, as of today, only about 15 states, the purple states here, accounting for about one-third of the U.S. population, have, um, uh, have taken affirmative steps toward creating an exchange. Nine states, the green states, have, uh, have adamantly refused to establish one, and the rest are up for grabs. Some are leaning forward, some are leaning against. Uh, even states that want to create exchanges may not be able to get them up and running by the October 1st, 2013 deadline. Uh, uh, that's rapidly approaching, and the, the, deadline, the deadline for declaring intent, their intent, or at least the supposed deadline, is a week after Election Day. But Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius estimates she may be uh, creating exchanges for as many as 30 states, and uh, other experts say the number may be even higher. Uh, it's not clear that HHS can create any of these, but even if they do, the statute doesn't allow any of that $1 trillion to flow, in, uh, to flow through exchanges that are established by the federal government. It only allows those subsidies to flow through uh, exchanges that are established by the state. Now, we, we talk a lot about uh, tax credits. You're going to hear me, Jonathan, uh, Tim talk about tax credits. Really what we're talking about here is government spending. Those tax credits are tied to outlays in fact, so, much, so many outlays that even though there's some tax reduction involved here, it's only about 20% of the total amount of money that we're talking about. Really what we're talking about is, is, is subsidies. And under the statute, if only 15 states establish exchanges, then two-thirds of that $1 trillion that's supposed to go to, uh, to private health insurance companies cannot. And I want you to just think about the consequences here. There's a first-order consequence of you're going to have uh, an influential lobby an industry that was expecting six, seven hundred trillion dollars, I'm sorry, seven hundred, six or seven hundred billion dollars in subsidies to offset the costs that Obamacare uh, imposes on them, uh, the cost of requiring them to cover pre-existing conditions and uh, cutting uh, the, 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 uh, the cuts that they're expecting to see in Medicare Advantage. They're not going to be very happy about that. 
There's a second order effect, which is some supporters even, as well as independent uh, observers, have estimated that Obamacare is going to cause some people's health insurance premiums to double. The purpose of those subsidies is to shift the costs of Obamacare's health insurance regulations from employers or consumers to the taxpayer so that the taxpayers won't scream about those costs. The lack of subsidies would not increase the cost of this law, but it would prevent the federal government from hiding those costs. It would expose taxpayers to those costs. And without those subsidies, therefore, lots more people are going to scream because lots more people are going to see their premiums double. Then there's a third order effect, which is adverse selection. When those people see their premiums go up that are not getting these subsidies, uh, and uh, this, the lack of those tax credits causes even more people to be exempt from the individual mandate. A lot fewer people are going to purchase health insurance. They're going to withdraw from the market. Premiums are going to rise further as a result of that. That's going to lead to a lot more screaming. The anger is going to be geographically centered in the states that do not implement exchanges. And when all those interests start to demand that Congress reopen Obamacare, there's going to be one political party that's committed to repeal and probably still controls at least one chamber of Congress. So right there, I mean, that spells trouble for this law. That's why my friend Tim Jost has said the entire structure of the law depends on these subsidies being available in all states. It's why other experts have said that uh, this, if states don't create ex exchanges, that could strike a fatal blow against the law. And it's why the IRS is trying to rewrite it by offering those tax credits and subsidies and imposing those taxes in states that did not create exchanges. Now, did Congress restrict did Congress restrict subsidies to these subsidies to states that established their own exchanges? Jonathan walked through, I won't go through all the text here uh, because Jonathan walked through those, those provisions. I'll just say that the statute explicitly, repeatedly, and without contradiction does restrict those tax credits and subsidies to state-created exchanges. The most natural reading of the, the statute is that Congress wanted federal and state-created exchanges to be equivalent, except for where Congress provided otherwise. But could Congress have possibly intended that? Could they have intended to hand states this weapon? The answer is yes. Now, uh, uh, Professor Joseph said there is no co coherent policy reason why Congress would have done that. But in fact, there was. Moderate senators like Ben Nelson and Joe Lieberman uh, insist on giving states a greater role to reach 60 votes, the authors of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, had to accommodate them. They had to give states that larger role. But there's a, the commandeering problem that Jonathan mentioned. And, and I should mention, Obamacare passed in the Senate by one vote. They did not have a single vote to spare. To get around that commandeering problem, they had to create incentives for states to cooperate, and they did. And, uh, and this, was, this was a live issue. Don't take my word for it that there was a, a, a coherent policy rationale. Professor Jost wrote in January of 2009 that States can't require, or Congress can't require states to create exchanges, but they can get around that problem by providing a federal fallback or offering tax subsidies for insurance only in states that complied with federal requirements or uh, offering explicit payments to states that establish exchanges. Uh, and, and in fact, Congress did all three. Professor Jost is a very influential person. So there was a coherent policy reason. And that was part of the debate long before the first draft of the bill was introduced. But the legislative history, the entire legislative history of the bill, shows that this is what Congress intended to do. Every other health care overhaul advanced by the Senate, also uh, by Senate Democrats, also denied subsidies to states that did not comply with the law, that did not implement provisions that Congress wanted them to. Uh, this is uh, the chief sponsor of the bill, uh, 
Senator Max Baucus, Chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. I understand the video is not working, uh, so, but I do have, I, I, in a colloquy during a markup over this bill, he was challenged by a Republican, uh, Senator John Ensign of Nevada, how do we have jurisdiction to tell states to create exchanges and, make a, and, and change their state laws on coverage? And Max Baucus, the sponsor of this bill, said there are conditions to participate in the exchange for setting up an exchange. And states, an exchange is essentially is tax credits. Taxes are in the jurisdiction of this committee. He admitted that they were making ta those tax credits conditional on state-created exchanges, and that that was an essential feature of the bill because without that, without tax credits being conditional on states creating ex exchanges, the Senate Finance Committee would not have had jurisdiction uh, to consider the bill to begin with. As House Democrats were considering whether they should pass this Senate bill uh, without any uh, amendments, or I'm sorry, as, as they were trying to conference the Senate and the House bills, 11 House Democrats from Texas wrote that they feared that under the Senate bill, which they ultimately voted for, residents of uncooperative states would not get the subsidies that residents of cooperative states would receive. They said that uh, residents of those states would not receive any benefit. And of course, by enacting the Senate bill uh, without changing this statute, supporters revealed that no matter what their policy preferences might have been, their true intent was to enact this language. Uh, Jonathan has talked a little bit about uh, the rationales for the IRS rule, so I won't go into those, but there are people who are going to be hurt by this rule. This isn't just an example of uh, the IRS offering tax credits to people. There are people who are going to be hurt. Those tax credits, oh, I'm sorry, these are, uh, it, under the rationale uh, offered by the IRS, these are all the provisions of the statute that you have to ignore uh, and pretend did not exist. They all say things like established by a state. Um, if the IRS rule is allowed to proceed, then a lot of employers in those states that don't create exchanges are going to face taxes the Congress never authorized. That's because if one of their in employees is eligible for a tax credit, that can trigger taxes against the employer, even if the individual employee never receives that tax credit. Likewise, uh, individuals can be can become subject uh, uh, to a tax under uh, tax penalty under the individual mandate, even if uh, just by virtue of them being eligible for one of these tax credits, they don't have to receive the tax credit. So, in the upside down world of Obamacare, here the availability of a tax credit can actually result in higher taxes against individuals, uh, and that's why I think that's. Um, uh, one of the reasons the Oklahoma lawsuit is so important. So I will wrap up there, and I will um, turn things over to Professor Jost, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, um, Jonathan and Michael. Uh, let me be begin by making a disclosure. Uh, I was attacked in the Hill yesterday, and said that I, which said that I'm going around the country pretending to be an expert without telling people that I'm a Democrat. So. <laughs> no secrets here. I'm a Democrat. Uh, I am in favor of extending health care to the 50 million Americans who are uninsured. I would support any party that uh, was strongly in favor of doing that. And I see, to my mind right now, the Democratic Party is doing that, and therefore I support them. Um, but let me talk about the, uh, having disclosed that secret, uh, let me talk about the topic that's on the table today. Uh, in a little more than a year from now, millions of uninsured Americans will begin in enrolling in health insurance plans through the American Health Benefits Exchanges. These Americans will be able to purchase health insurance because of the availability of premium tax credits. 
At this point, it appears, as was already said, that many states are choosing not to create their own exchanges in 2014, but rather to have their citizens purchase health insurance through federally facilitated exchanges. The ability of the federal government to establish federal exchanges is a key element of the Affordable Care Act. It is essential to provide a backstop against the partisan-driven state inaction, which we are now seeing. All versions of the Senate bill, which became the Affordable Care Act, included a federal fallback exchange. All of the benefits of state exchanges are available through the federal exchange as well. No reasonable reading of the Affordable Care Act would deny premium tax credits to uninsured families just because their state opts for a federal exchange. Final rules promulgated by the IRS allow the federal exchange to issue premium tax credits. Michael Cannon and Jonathan Adler say that the Affordable Care Act does not permit this result, however, based on their reading of a couple of subsections of the legislation. A lawsuit pending in Oklahoma presents this issue for the first time in a federal court. I do not intend to spend my time today debating standing and neither of my friends and colleagues, but it seems clear to me that the Fourth Circuit's decision in the Virginia Affordable Care Act case and Supreme Court precedents that it cites offer ample reason for dismissing the Oklahoma case. As the Fourth Circuit's unanimous decision made clear, a state has no standing to sue the United States on behalf of its citizens, who are also United States citizens, including employers. Although Oklahoma might someday have standing to sue because it is an employer itself, subject to the tax if it fails to provide insurance to its employees who end up receiving federal premium tax credits through the federal exchange, a lawsuit at this time would be a suit to restrain the assessment or collection of a tax, which is prohibited by the Tax Anti-Injunction Act, and therefore the Oklahoma case is going to be dismissed. But someday, a plaintiff is likely to come along with standing to litigate the legality of the federal exchange premium tax credits, and, and you can figure out who those people are by reading um, uh, Cannon and Adler's writing on this. Thus, the debate is worth having. I believe that two things are clear with respect to this issue. The first is that, as Cannon and Adler note, a number of provisions of the Affordable Care Act use the phrase exchange established by the state under Section 1311, including two of the subsections of Section 1401, or 36B as it's sometimes referred to uh, by, its, uh, by its codification site, which establishes the eligibility requirements for premium tax credits. The second is that Congress intended that premium tax credits would be available in both state and federal exchanges. Both federal and state exchanges were present in all of the drafts of the Senate bill, which eventually became the Affordable Care Act, and no one has been able to find any contemporaneous statement by any member of Congress to suggest that premium tax credits would be available only in a state that adopted state exchanges. Cannon and Adler have thoroughly scrubbed the legislative history, and the best evidence they've come up with to support their argument is a brief exchange between Senator Baucus and Ensign over the jurisdiction of the Finance Committee over malpractice legislation um, that has absolutely nothing to do with premium tax credits issued through the federal exchange. It does say that the states will be able to issue premium tax credits. It says nothing about whether the federal exchange will be able to or not. I am not aware of any member of Congress who has said that they voted for this legislation with the intention that federal exchanges would be prohibited from issuing premium tax credits, and a number have said that Congress did not intend, or excuse me, that Congress did intend federal exchanges to have this power. 
Congress, in fact, did intend that premium tax credits would be available in all the states, including those that had federal rather than state exchanges. The question then becomes, what should be done when two of three subsections of a single section of a statute, when read in isolation and without reference to the structure of the Act, the definitions provided in the Act, or closely related uh, provisions of the Act, seem to say something that Congress did not intend. The IRS charged with Congress explicitly with interpreting the premium tax credit provisions resolved this question by issuing a final rule concluding that federal exchanges would be able to issue premium tax credits. I believe that a fair-minded judge looking at the entire statute, its structure, and legislative history will reach the same result. To understand this issue, it is necessary to understand the role of the exchange in the Affordable Care Act. The American Health Benefits Exchange is fundamentally a market in which health insurance is bought and sold. The exchange is also responsible for ensuring that insurers who sell their products through the exchange meet certain minimum standards, uh, make sure that individuals and small employers who uh, purchase in the exchange are getting value for their dollars, and finally, the exchange is the gateway to federal premium tax credits, Medicaid, and other assistance programs for those unable to afford health insurance. The issue here concerns the statutory provisions governing exchanges. At this point, I would like to warn everybody present that when Cannon and Adler and I debated this issue in the Health Affairs blog, Politico proclaimed the debate to be too wonky for Politico readers. <laughs> if you're sincerely interested in this issue, however, I would urge you to get a copy of the statute and track what follows. A court certainly will. And my email address is jostt at wlu.edu, and I'll be happy to email this to you because I can guarantee you probably very few of you will be able to follow this, but let me proceed. The term exchange is a defined term under the statute. Section 1563B of the Affordable Care Act states, the term exchange means a health American health benefits exchange established under 1311 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Section 1311 requires literally that the state shall establish an American health benefits exchange by January 1, 2014. Because the Constitution, as is already pointed out, prohibits the federal government from actually ordering the states to establish exchanges, Section 1321C provides the Secretary of Health and Human Services shall directly or through an agreement with a nonprofit entity establish and operate such exchange within the state. Under the ACA's definition of exchange, the term exchange in Section 1321 means a 1311 exchange. This is reinforced by Section 1321 itself, in which the term such exchange refers to the required exchange mentioned earlier in the section, which is to say a 1311 exchange. When Section 1321 directs HHS to establish an exchange, therefore, it means to establish a Section 1311 exchange, which Section 1401, or 36B, is authorized to provide premium tax credits. Moreover, Section 1311D1 defines an exchange as an exchange established by the state. Therefore, by definition, by statutory definition, the Section 1321 federally facilitated exchange is, in fact, an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. Section 1312 confirms this by defining an eligible individual, that is, an individual who can purchase insurance through an exchange, as an individual who resides in the state that established the exchange. 
In some, under the ACA, a 1321 federal exchange is legally an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. Sorry, that's the way law works. <laughs> Congress gets to say what words mean. While all of this sounds a bit bizarre, you must remember that the ACA's standard plan, as all admit, is for the exchanges to be exchanges established by the state under Section 1311, and therefore the definitions in Section 1563 and 1312 and the cross-reference in Section 1321C are meant to show that any exchange established under the ACA should be treated as exchanges established by the state under Section 1311. Section 1401 is not the only section in the ACA that imposes duties on the state and federal exchanges relevant to premium tax credits. Section 1311D4G requires exchanges, including by definition federal exchanges, to provide their enrollees with premium calculators that include a deduction for premium tax credits. Section 1311D4I requires exchanges to forward to the IRS information about enrollees who are eligible for premium subsidies. Section 1311D4J requires an exchange to notify employers if their employees are receiving premium tax credits. Finally, Section 1413 requires states and federal exchanges to use a streamlined application and eligibility assessments to help people qualify for health subsidy programs, which is explicitly is defined to include premium tax credits. All of these sections apply to federal as well as state exchanges by definition, and it would be nonsensical to say that the federal government has to carry out all of these functions in federally facilitated exchanges, but at the end of the day can't issue the premium tax credits. Most importantly, a third subsection of Section 1401 itself clarifies, and this has already been mentioned, that premium tax credits are available through both state and federal exchanges. The ACA is composed of the Senate version of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and the Health Care and Education Reconciliation Act, HACERA. The Senate adopted the bill that became Public Law 11148 in December of 2009 and the House in March of 2010. Shortly thereafter, the House and Senate adopted HACERA, though the House uh, made certain changes to the Senate bill, uh, through which the House made certain changes to the Senate bill. As a later adopted statute, HACERA takes precedence over PAPACA if there is a contradiction. Moreover, since the adoption of HACERA was necessary to secure House adoption of the Senate bill, it is doubly important that HACERA be taken seriously. The House bill contained only a federal exchange. Senate 10, uh, section 1004 of HACERA adds to the IRC Section 36B, a section that requires both 1311 and 1321 exchanges to provide certain information regarding premium tax credits to the IRS and to taxpayers. Cannon and Adler admit the existence of this provision, but simply say it is meaningless as 1321 exchanges cannot issue uh, premium tax credits. This, however, violates a basic canon of statutory construction that every provision of a congressional enactment is supposed to be given effect. The canon and Adler interpretation of the ACA is also refuted by the legislative history of the ACA. The Senate bill which became the ACA was derived from Senate uh, Bill 1679, the Senate Help Committee Bill, and Senate Bill 1796, which emerged later from the Senate Finance Committee. Each of these bills included state and federal exchanges. Each relied on premium tax credits to make health insurance affordable, and each made these credits available in every state through state and federal exchanges. 
The HELP bill allowed the states to either establish exchanges themselves or to request the federal government to establish an exchange in the state. If the state failed to do either four years after the enactment of the statute, the federal government would create a federal fallback exchange in the state. Premium tax credits were available in establishing participating states and also in the federal fallback exchange, but they were only available through the federal exchange if the state complied with the employer responsibility provision for state and local employees. In other words, in that bill, states were threatened with the loss of premium tax credits through the federal exchange, but not for uh, establishing, uh, for failing to establish state exchanges, but rather for failing to cover their employers, employees. The Finance Committee abandoned any limitation on the federal exchange issuing premium tax credits. In fact, the rules it creates are very similar to the final ACA. It provides that states shall establish an exchange. If a state failed to do so within 24 months, HHS would contract with a non-governmental entity to establish and operate an exchange. But the Finance Committee report refers to these federally established exchanges as state exchanges. In a number of, meaning that they're going to be there in the states and they are going to operate like state exchanges. In a number of places, including the precursor to the current premium tax credit provision, the Finance Committee bill refers to exchanges established by the state, but unlike the HELP bill, there are no conditions on federal exchanges issuing premium tax credits. The provisions of the current ACA come largely out of the Finance Committee bill which makes sense because the Finance Committee bill has jurisdiction over tax matters. The punitive provisions of the HELP bill, which now Cannon and Adler are trying to read back into the Affordable Care Act, were abandoned. The Senate debated the ACA extensively during November and December of 2009, as we all remember. The version of the act that they considered included both federal and state exchanges. Throughout the debate, senators assumed that tax credits would be available in all 50 states. Thus, Senator Bingaman stated on December 4, 2009, that the ACA, quote, includes creation of a new health insurance exchange in each state that will provide Americans a centralized source of meaningful private insurance, as well as refundable premium tax credits to ensure that that coverage is affordable. Senator Johnson stated on December 17th, quote, the legislation will also form health insurance exchanges in every state, which will provide tax credits to significantly reduce the cost of purchasing that insurance coverage. If Congress had meant to limit premium subsidies to state-established exchanges as an incentive to the state, one would have expected the Finance Committee report to have mentioned this, and for at least one senator to have pointed this out during the debate of November and December of 2009. Most importantly, the Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation provided Congress on November 30, 2009, with an analysis of the impact of the legislation on premiums that assumed that premium tax credits would be available in all states, making no distinction between federal and state exchanges. Remember, federal exchanges were in the bill at this time. They weren't just ignoring them. The CBO and JCT have their own lawyers and had extensive discussions with senators to arrive at their scores. They surely would have noted it if they or the Senate interpreted the statute as only offering premium tax credits through state exchanges. Over the next few days in 2009, the CBO analysis was discussed by Republican Senators Grassley, Enzi, and Coburn. 
None raised what Cannon and Adler see as an obvious point, that the CBO analysis was flawed because it failed to recognize that premium tax credits would not be available through federal exchanges. In fact, the CBO repeatedly provided cost estimates on the ACA and HACERA in late 2009 and into 2010, but never suggested that premium tax credits would be reduced if states failed to establish exchanges. In their most recent report from July and, uh, of this year updating the ACA coverage estimates in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, the CBO and JCT reiterate again that premium tax credits are available through state, federal, and partnership exchanges. Senators often don't listen to each other. They don't just all sit there on the floor in rapt attention as other senators speak. They do listen to the CBO. Uh, and in particular, in the context of this legislation, they listened very closely to the CBO because the scoring was very important as to whether this legislation was going to make targets or not. If there was any possibility that the CBO had overestimated the cost of the bill by including premium tax credits that would not, in fact, be paid, surely senators would have noticed this because it would have meant fewer pay-fors that they would have to come up with to make this legislation come in on target. Cannon and Adler argue that Congress prohibited the federal exchanges from offering premium tax credits as a way of encouraging the states to adopt exchanges. They have found the motive. Uh, it is in fact clear that Congress favored state exchanges and they did offer generous grants to the states to establish exchanges. To date, they have committed $2 billion to the states for exchange establishment grants with more on the way. States that fail to establish exchanges will also lose control over their insurance markets, which is an important consideration to the insurance commissioners that I deal with as a consumer representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. But Congress did not try to coerce the states to create exchanges by threatening their citizens with the loss of billions of dollars of premium tax credits. I would note that Oklahoma rejects the Cannon and Adler story about congressional intent in its complaint and offers a different story. Oklahoma argues that Congress did not mean to encourage state exchanges through uh, 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 refusing premium tax credits to federal exchanges, but instead meant to give the states a free choice between helping their citizens with tax credits on the one hand and protecting their businesses against the danger of having to pay or play on the other. The only thing that Cannon and Adler's and Oklahoma's interpretation of congressional intent have in common is that both are straining to find a rationale for something that isn't even mentioned in any of the legislative history. Not only do a number of provisions of the ACA already described refer explicitly to federal and state exchanges performing functions related to premium tax credits, but the entire structure of the Affordable Care Act is based on the availability of premium tax credits in every state. The ACA's guaranteed issue and community rating requirements apply to insurers in all states, regardless of whether they have state or federal exchanges. So, so do the ACA's risk mitigation programs. So does the ACA's individual mandate. I completely agree with what my friend Michael Cannon here said about the viability of the Affordable Care Act depends on the availability of premium tax credits in every state. Um, the premium tax credits are intended to bring millions of new participants into insurance markets, and if they are not available in many states, the nature of insurance markets will, depend, will change dramatically 
increasing the risk of in, uh, uh, to insurers, and decreasing availability of insurance, not just to lower income, but also to middle income Americans. If this was the intent of Congress, it surely would have made it more evident. The ACA is admittedly not a model of clear drafting. It contains three sections with the same number, section 1563. It amends an existing provision of the Public Health Services Act inconsistently, twice within the scope of six pages. A conference to reconcile the Senate and House bills would have produced an improved and cleaner product, but as has already been noted, the Senate election in Massachusetts in early 2010 made a conference committee impossible. But the courts will interpret the ambiguous language of the ACA in the context of the ACA structure and purpose, in the light of its legislative history, and putting great weight on the Hisera Amendment and find that the federally facilitated exchanges can, in fact, issue premium tax credits. Finally, the courts are likely to grant great deference to the IRS, which is explicitly in 36B given authority to interpret the section. A recent CRS legal analysis of this issue states that under the ruling Chevron doctrine, Court doctrine, courts will defer to the interpretation of the IRS of Section 36B unless they conclude that Congress has spoken to the precise question at issue. As should by now be amply clear, Congress has not clearly said that the federal exchanges cannot grant premium tax credits. If a court finds the issue ambiguous, however, the question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute. In this situation, legislative regulations are given controlling weight unless they are arbitrary, capricious, or manifestly contrary to the statute. As noted already, the interpretation of the ACA by the IRS is completely consistent with the statute rather than manifestly contrary to the statute. The IRS explicitly considered and overruled the Cannon and Adler argument, although admittedly they did not do so uh, with a great deal of verbiage. Uh, the courts will, in the end, accept the IRS interpretation as well. In 2014, millions of Americans will gain access to private health insurance coverage with the assistance of federal premium tax credits. It was the hope of Congress and remains the hope of federal agencies implementing the ACA that they will receive these premium tax credits through state exchanges. But the ACA also uh, foreseeing Congress also foreseeing the situation that might develop and that in fact has developed uh, that not all the states and many of the states are not immediately creating state exchanges did create federal fallback exchanges to ensure that all Americans get access to affordable health care. The Department of Treasury has correctly determined based on the language and history of the ACA that premium tax credits will be available through all exchanges state and federal. I believe that when it comes time for a federal court to rule on this issue, the courts will concur. I conclude with a paraphrase from Justice Scalia's majority opinion in Eli Lilly versus Medtronic, in which he held that a statute that referred to a federal law which regulates the manufacture, use, and sale of drugs meant a federal law that regulates the use and sale of drugs and medical devices. What he said was, and I quote with a slight paraphrase, no interpretation we have been able to imagine can transform Section 36B into an elegant piece of statutory draftsmanship. To construe it as the IRS has, one must posit a good deal of legislative imprecision. But to construe it as Cannon and Adler would, 
one must posit an implausible substantive intent as well. I am confident that the federal courts, I can't absolutely assure you Justice Scalia will be on my side, but I can assure you that the federal courts will eventually uphold the IRS interpretation of the ACA. And I thank you for your attention, and I thank Michael for the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you.